vengeance. I am the knight. I am... Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how's it going tonight? Oh, it's going pretty good. I've been able to make time for the show in my grueling schedule of Diablo 4. It's uh, getting problematic, Matt. Just the endorphin rush of click, 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 smash, 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 click, click, smash, smash, smash. I've made it to the third tier. Uh, so I've uh, I've beaten the game and then uh, played through the challenges of the second tier. And now I'm up to the third tier. Uh, so that's been... Um, more hours than I'd like to recount uh, working on uh, my level 57 Barbarian. That's... Mash, mash, click, click. But my question to you tonight, uh, my question to you tonight, in honor or in, uh, in conjunction with our show topic this evening, what do you believe is the first, we'll say modern era, and you can define that however you please, what do you believe is going to be the first modern era Batman story to be retold? Retold within comics, I assume. No. Oh, yes, of course. Right. Not an adaptation, but I stare off into space and go through the catalog of everything in my head. It's an interesting question because we've reached a point where so much of comics is now an auteur sort of thing. Golden Age stories can be retold because sort of everyone knows that most Golden Age stories were churned out not as art with a capital A, or at least that was not how the people creating them viewed them, but as a, a mill. And it was they were short and there was room to expand them. Something like year one, if you expand that, you bloat it. So new varied origins of Batman now have to go in other directions. Things like Zero Year or The Night. I'm trying to think of the last Batman story that was a true retelling. And the only one I can think of from even the 70s that was a, a story from the 70s that has been retold was Darwin Cook retelling 1974's Night of the Stalker in his issue of Solo. And I've been wanting to find a third story to go with that so we could do Night of the Stalker, Solo, and something else. The first one that's coming to mind that could be retold, I don't know how modern it is. Because the other thing you run into, and I'm, you know, sort of philosophizing on your question more than answering it, is that another reason you can get away with doing retellings of Golden Age stories is because there was no continuity. You're not usually just retelling, but recontextualizing the story. Tonight is a little different than that, but I think that's because of the story that we're dealing with. But something like Monster Men 
recontextualized that Hugo Strange story and set it more firmly in the modern in the Batman canon. And I, I don't want to say origin stories. And even though those aren't modern, I mean the retellings are they're retelling golden age stories. Something like, and I mean, again, the first one that's coming to mind is something that I could see being done is again from the 70s. But some kind of retelling of There Is No Hope in Crime Alley with the more modern interpretation of Leslie Tompkins and having it be a Leslie who knows Bruce's identity. I mean, there is an episode of Batman the Animated Series, Appointment in Crime Alley, that takes some of that story, but it's not really a retelling. It's very loose. And again, in another medium. And I mean, we've seen stories that take elements of modern stories how many times have we seen, oh, well, that's obviously riffing on Nightfall or that's riffing on No Man's Land. Again, I don't see you being able to retell Court of Owls, say, in any way that is going to expand that story because it's 11 issues long to begin with. Well, see, that was going to be my answer. I think, I think in the next 20 years, somebody's going to say, I can recontextualize Court of Owls. I can make it different. I can maybe cut cut it down and maybe even make it more core to the mythos. Here's one. I know that many people would consider this blasphemous. Uh-oh. We wouldn't, because you can tell by the list. Some sort of retelling and recontextualization of Killing Joke. I thought you were going to go in a totally different direction. I thought you were going to go with the returns. That's a fascinating idea there. See, returns being an alternate future, I could see you being able to do something with that that would possibly, you know, tie it in with Beyond and, you know, a, a wider, more core DC universe. But no, recontextualizing Killing Joke, keeping the the one bad day as a theme to it, but making it a finding some way to not just have Barbara's shooting be a pure fridging and to let Jim have more agency in the story as well. One of the shorts we read for tonight, I think is an actual good lens for a possible future for returns taking the grim dark absurdity of returns and putting more humanity into it i think would be an interesting way to approach that world i mean frank miller's probably gonna have to be dead but uh somebody could do it and, and that, i did I, I did like what we read tonight and that's again where you run into the auteur problem that you have so many creators who are invested in this. I mean, Alan Moore doesn't give a shit about any of the stuff he wrote, but he still takes umbrage at anyone else touching. Oh, of course. How dare you try to do something with the Watchmen? Right. But I think there are some writers, I think Grant Morrison would embrace it because Morrison knows they've made their career, especially on Batman, on riffing and recontextualizing so much that I would want to believe that they would equally 
like to see their work riffed on and recontextualized. But I don't think a lot of writers would be as giving when it came to that. But I might be wrong. Prove me wrong, children. Prove me wrong. Uh, speaking as a writer, we're all kind of cocky douchebags because most people would have the humility to say, "Ugh, I don't want to put my thoughts out there into the world. I don't have any good thoughts, though. It takes a real, real asshole to say, I have something to say. You all shall listen to me. Bear. Tonight, we're returning to Thrice Told Tales. And this time, we're doing three retellings of the first Batman story, The Case of the Chemical Syndicate. For those of you who haven't been listening from episode one, thank you for coming back on, but go back and listen to the early episodes too. This would be a good time to go back and just, if you haven't listened to it or haven't listened to it in a while, maybe go two thirds of the way into that episode. They weren't as long and rambly back then. We, we've gotten <laughs> we've gotten worse over the, the 99, 99 plus because, you know, 75 took multiple weeks. But oh, wait, no, 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 mm, no, this is this is episode 99. This is episode 99. I was just saying it's more than 99 weeks, but it is episode 99, no doubt. For those, the case of the chemical syndicate, the first Batman story is basically Bruce Wayne is sitting around in a smoking jacket, hanging out with Jim Gordon at his home, Bruce's home. Jim gets a call. Oh, the chemical magnate has been murdered. His son found the body. We go, they talk to the son. Then the mysterious figure that is the Batman begins investigating as this guy's partners get knocked off one at a time. And it turns out the fourth partner, Stryker, is the one behind it. Batman punches Stryker into a vat of chemicals. Thus is the ah! fate of all criminals. End of story. Six pages. Quick. Very much a shadow story with Batman in it. Currently at number 274 on the big board. Because it is very much a shadow story with Batman in it. And Batman, he kills without regard. There's not a lot of Batman in that story yet other than Bruce Wayne is named, Batman is named, Jim Gordon is named. None of the other elements are there yet. It's interesting that you can even see by the time you get three issues later with 30, when you get the monk, Batman is becoming more fully formed even that short a time later. But this is very much a pilot. And it's even like that pilot where they didn't even release that pilot they've released it as like a special feature on the box set where one of the main cast members is a different actor. It just doesn't feel like a Batman story. And it would have been interesting to like watch like editorials reaction. Oh, wow. This Batman character is kind of taken off. The kiddos like it. And then to make the decision, let's spin him off into his own book. And then eventually, let's just make Detective Comics a Batman book. With maybe some other, you know, backups and whatnot. By 38, by the time they introduce Robin, Batman is a going concern. And so that's a little less than a year later. And I think in between then and there, it was just this slow build. But again, there's, can you imagine a world where it was Airwave who took off instead of Batman? <laughs> 
in the same way when you look at action comics it's like there's a universe where it was zatara who was the big hit and not superman and it's it's magic heroes that are the the cornerstone of modern big two publishing and not superheroes that'd be weird matt that'd be real weird or somehow, you know, Slam Bradley in Detective Comics number one, and we, it's all detective stories and not superheroes. Oh, that would be shit. That would be amazing. <laughs> that would be a universe that I think we both would enjoy, as much as we enjoy a superhero, a universe where it's just been detective stories for 80 years. Uh, that, that reminds me, I got to redo Burned, and I got to get back with Ian, and we got to start writing more reviews. But yeah, so what we're doing tonight is this story has been retold four times. And we are going to be covering all four of those retellings. Two of them are in one issue, and one is in an issue with that's an anthology. So we're going to be covering the anthology, including it as the final, and the two tellings from the same issue as one story, because I wasn't going to break them out, because there's only so many... slots on the board the case of this chemical syndicate can take up but to make things more complicated in the anthology we won't be covering one specific story from the anthology because that is part or is told in uh as uh as an arc across multiple books that we'll get to yes because nothing is easy in the world of that chat no we love you and we continue to do it we are starting with The Cry of Night is Sudden Death. This is Detective Comics, Volume 1, number 387. The writer is Mike Friedrich. Pencils by Bob Brown. The inks by Joe Giella. No colorist is credited. Lettered by Ben Oda and edited by Julius Schwartz. The cover date is May of 1969. Nice. First, First off, real quick, Problematic Creator Watch. Noted sexual harasser, Julius Schwartz. This is the 30th anniversary of the first Batman story. And so this is, despite having a different title, is an adaptation of Case of the Chemical Syndicate. The original story, as we said, was six pages, and there's not really any character to anybody in there. Not even really Jim or Bruce. It's very paint-by-numbers, the action is happening and here we go here we get a lot more character motivation and it focuses very much on a small element from that original story because in the original story the son of our first murder victim is the the suspect and There, it's sort of, you know, okay, and his son found him, and we're going to interrogate him, and we know he's going to stand to inherit, so maybe there's something going on, but you don't have much to do with that in six pages. Here, the son is a major part of the story. He is um, portrayed a couple of different ways in uh, in the stories tonight. Here, he is joe friday's worst enemy i absolutely made the note about i i note jim gordon having some bfe big friday energy (laughs) (laughs) oh i love that when he Uh, calls 
Mel Lambert, the son, a parody of a gentleman. I could absolutely hear that in Jack Webb's dry, flat intonation. Listen here, you parody of a gentleman. Exactly. But (laughs) what struck me about the choices they make in this story is that Batman is much more sympathetic to Mel Lambert, the counterculture peacenik hippie. Robin is the one who comes down on him real hard. And that is certainly a choice. Like, Robin is almost an antagonist in this story. Yeah, because Dick, he showed Batman disrespect, and that means, you know, he's got to be the killer. He's got to be the bad guy. Dick seems to be blind to the fact that all the evidence against this kid is circumstantial at best. I mean, the guy looks like Maynard G. Krebs. I mean, he is, or not, uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of a Bob Denvery, more Shaggy Rogers, but there's there's that just stereotype to the kid. 69, you say, right? Yes. I guess that is uh, prime time for a Janis Joplin reference, right? Yeah, the fact that Batman recognizes Janis Joplin, Janis Joplin's music. And then Robin is, I mean, he's the one who's listening to Janis Joplin. So Robin is not, you know, completely L7, dude. He's no square. <laughs> but for some reason, the minute that this kid mouths off at Bruce, it's just like, yeah, he's got to be the bad guy. You get to the end of the story, and it's very clear that that was done that way to make a point at the end of the story. But it does mean you're painting Robin somewhat out of character throughout. And here, Lambert's motivation isn't financial. This is something we'll see throughout these stories that particular character gets very different motivations as you move through because here it's he's a peacenik and because this is the late 60s this isn't just a chemical company they're quote-unquote atomic chemists i was absolutely waiting for this version of striker to be a soviet double agent or something where instead he's doing this just so he can, you know, keep all the profits from selling their new atomic secret chemical stuff for himself. Well, of course he's a, he's a good capitalist. Right. You know, it's, it had that, you know, it's that late sixties and the opening panel has a newspaper blowing in the wind with a headline about, you know, the UN being concerned about war and, I was like, okay, there's going to be some, you know, communism in here. But as Clue always reminds us, communism is a red herring. So Always a red herring. Always a red herring. I guess it plays out that way in Oppenheimer, doesn't it? It's interesting to look at each of these stories and how many liberties they take with the original story. This isn't the one that plays it the closest to the original, but it's far from the one that takes it the furthest from the original either. This one just sort of is like, okay, we're adding Robin into the mix. 
and we're making the sun a sort of focal point of the story. I will, uh, I'll say this now. I did not care for, uh, the most recent, uh, retelling. I thought this had more to say about the story than, than that one did. Yes. Cause that is the one that plays it plot beat wise, the closest to the original, but just adds a lot of purple narration to it that that doesn't work no and we'll we'll get to that when we get there because i have a lot to say but that's also part of the anthology where we have other stories to discuss but yeah this one you're right is at least saying something because you get to the end and the sun obviously didn't do it it's all it's striker and he was framing the sun by having a a hitman who was committing the murders dress similarly to the sun when you get to the very end robin is thinking you know boy i judged this guy just by the way he looked and i misread the whole situation meanwhile the sun is thinking batman helped me but isn't he part of the system and they both think that they have a lot of thinking to do that's what Friedrich is going for here. It's, you know, maybe if we all listened to each other a little more and didn't immediately jump to these conclusions, the world might be a better place. In the 60s, you could get away with that without it reeking of both sides-ism. It's a little harder to do that now. But then again, I, you know, in the late 60s, things were about as polarized as they would be until, you know, now. Uh, yeah, as Matt so uh, wisely pointed out to me, we're going chronological tonight? We're going chronological. Okay. Why, why make it more confusing, right? So the next story that we're going to cover actually includes this first story. And, I mean, I, I think the second story in its reprint has basically the – I wouldn't call it a take so much as, as a summary – and uh, I'll, I'll read it here for the good people. <laughs> Several significant changes were made, of course, to turn this into a 60s-style Batman. The original case of the Chemical Syndicate was only six pages long and was a far simpler tale. Not only were many of the character conflicts of the remake absent, but Bat- uh, Batman's, uh, Batman's relationship with the police was far less cozy and Robin had not yet been introduced in the original version either. Right, because in that first one, the GCPD takes a couple shots at Batman. We're in 1969. You know, 66 has wrapped within a year. Batman is duly deputized officer of the law here. But I also really like that he's the one who's like, no, we have to protect everyone, whether we agree with them or not. Yeah, which is not a voice that necessarily comes through on some of the other stories tonight. Yeah. Batman is the even hand here with Gordon and Robin being very anti-counterculture. And I am not terribly familiar with Mike Friedrich's work. So I'm not sure. I mean, he's... Famous, most famous probably for some significant runs on Justice League and these Batman stories. But I don't know if he was the the kind of guy who was a counterculture guy himself. I mean, a lot of these 
comic writers of the 60s and 70s were pretty lefty. I mean, good old Denny O'Neill is a, a good example of that. But this seems to be, you want to have Batman, your your main character is the voice of, you should listen to everyone. It's not going to be stodgy, the way DC stuff was often looked at as, you know, the stodgy, like, no, square-jawed America, John Wayne, mom, and apple pie, while Marvel was all like, yeah, man. Look, now all I want is Batman 66 meets Dragnet 69. I would read that comic. Yeah, I would. Now, would it just be Batman and Robin and Friday and Ganon with a mob story or would you actually have joe friday encountering gotham rogues yes okay so it's like the joker takes a road trip to la and batman and robin follow and suddenly you've got it's may 31st and we're on the super criminal beat yes do do we completely deadpan it because if you don't you out there don't know dragnet Friday and his partner, Bill Gannon, every episode were in a different department of the police because they were all based on real case files. So there's no way any one cop worked in every one of the departments from robbery to homicide to internal affairs to everything. But for the convenience of the show, you never really addressed that. So do we have L.A.'s super criminal division? Yes. I'm buying everything you're pitching, Matt. I think it would, it would be great. Uh, we'd have the like the long Friday monologue delivered. Uh, well, first, we have to like get Joe Friday on board with working with Batman. Like he's like, uh, hmm, nah, listen, nah, I don't I don't I don't trust you. You wear a mask. I like to look people in the eye. See? He's got his badge from Gotham City as a duly deputized officer of the law. Yeah, that's on the East Coast. Here on the West Coast, we don't do that. No, we just have the gangster squad going and breaking legs and stealing everything they can get their hands on. The LAPD was super corrupt. Still is. <laughs> you read my mind. Yeah, no, if you ever get the chance, read the book Gangster Squad. It would not change anyone's mind about ACAB. It would just reinforce everything. But yeah, this story takes that basic tale and just adds character to it. I I don't think there's much else on this particular one. Is there anything you want to add? I don't believe so. So that means it's time to put the cry of the night is kill on the big board. We are at 294 stories on the big board. We are closing in on the big 300. So close. Number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman. Batman year one down at 50 is Sort of Azrael miniseries from earlier this year by Dan Waters. 
Coming at a sexy 69, it's Batman Adventures number 15, Badge of Honor. 100 is Super Friends, the Batman Adventures team-up of Batman and Superman. 150 is Injustice Gods Among Us, Year 2, Volume 1. 200 is Faces, the Matt Wagner, Legends of the Dark Knight, Two-Face arc. 250, we got Bruce Wayne, Not Super, uh, All Ages graphic novel. And hey, 294, Curse of the White Knights. Oh, the only book that could be worse than White Knight is its sequel. This is above the original case of the Chemical Syndicate. This is above 274. Yes. It's not problematic. So that gets us out of the 240s, into the 230s, 220s maybe. 200 is currently, as you said, Faces. 199, Showcase, 94, Mad Men Across the Water. I don't know if we're up there. No. This isn't above 202. Joker's boner. <laughs> because listen, they add more character to this. And while it's not problematic, Mel Lambert is still a stereotype. Oh yeah. And Robin is way out of character to accommodate the story. Yeah. I think for instance, 222 commissioner Gordon walks a beat is wacky fun. And I think that probably puts it above this, but I don't know how much lower it goes than Commissioner Gordon walks a beat. I'd say it's definitely above uh, Lisa Grass, 229. Yeah. I think it's above uh, 224, You Can't Hide from a Dead Man, that Dead Man issue of Brave and the Bold. I mean, that's insane. But this, while the characters are stereotypes, they're at least trying to build character here. And I think that that Bob Haney story is just a lot of like crazy plot and not a lot of character. Well, you want to put it above or below Resurrection of Raish Al Ghul at 223. It's funny because now that's another story where Robin, in this case, Tim Drake, seems woefully out of character. But that has a couple of really good scenes. Like, I love when Dick and Tim sort of reconcile. It's got some cool action. It's wildly inconsistent, but at least there's a little more meat on its bones than this. So I think this is the new 224. All right. Our second story of the night is what I am calling, for disambiguation's sake, the cases of the chemical syndicate. This is Detective Comics, Volume 1, number 627. There are two stories in here. The first story is written by Marv Wolfman, with pencils by Jim Aparo, inks by Mike DiCarlo, colored by Adrienne Roy, lettered by John Costanza. The second is written by Alan Grant, penciled by Norm Brayfogle, inked by Steve Mitchell, also colored by Roy, and lettered by Todd Klein. The issue is edited by Denny O'Neill and Kelly Puckett. The cover date is March of 1991. So in case you couldn't tell from that issue number, this is celebrating 600 issues of Batman and Detective Comics, even though it's technically the 601st, because the 600th would be 626, because its first appearance was in 27. I'm being pedantic, but y'all 
pay me to be pedantic. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> DC is obsessed with 52. Detective Comics is obsessed with 27. This issue starts out by reprinting both the original and the story we just talked about. And then it launches into two new retellings of Case of the Chemical Syndicate by the creative teams on the two Bat books at the time. Wolfman and Aparo were the creative team on Batman, and Grant and Brayfogle were the creative team on Detective. Wildly different approaches here. Incredibly different approaches. And both very suiting their specific creators. Because, I mean, you got Marv Wolfman, who is the superhero writer's superhero writer. I mean, this guy, other than, you know, this a fairly substantial run on Batman, co-creator of the new Teen Titans, writer of Crisis on Infinite Earths, substantial runs on Fantastic Four, and uh, I'm trying to think of the other Marvel properties. He's best known probably as a DC writer for titans and crisis but he is a massive massive body of work and so what he does is he takes this thing which is a crime story and completely is like we are gonna make this a superhero story we're gonna superhero all over this shit oh my and of actually the thing he's also best known for and how i did not remember this is this is one of my favorite marvel comics of all time but my brain is in superhero mode he is the writer of nearly the entire 70 issue run of tomb of dracula he started at like issue five issue seven and wrote seven to 70 co-creator of blade in that run that is a great friggin' comic and oh how i did not that did not immediately jump into my head it took me a minute to remember that like i feel bad i'm sorry marv wolfman for forgetting that particular credit but nonetheless uh, so i'm going to guess this is the only appearance of pesticide yes (laughs) yes it is shock of all shocks right because in this one the murderer is not looking for money is not doing this mysterious killing people in the night thing they are wearing a suit like not quite a superhero supervillain costume but something that looks like an industrial a biohazard suit and has a gun that pumps toxic sludge and they are melting the members of this syndicate yeah, it's the sludge that turned uh, a meal into a pile of goo in RoboCop. Yeah, pretty much. That would not surprise me. Wolfman was another one of those writers who you could see often, oh, he recently saw that movie, and he's riffing on that. Him and Claremont over in the X titles were both pretty famous for that. But here, yeah, I could absolutely see the RoboCop in that. It's interesting that the way this starts, the second story here is much more about social commentary. Here, the social commentary is used to forward the wacky superheroics 
because you've got, you know, they were poisoning the Gotham River. And here, Lambert's son, it was also similar to the last one, against his father's involvement in this chemical consortia. But here, he's not the killer either. He's always a red herring. He's like communism. But that is some commentary, but it turns out to not really have much to do with that. And it also opens with this very strange bit with Lambert Sr. in a cab and the cabbie talking to him about being an important person. He was, was he a doctor or a lawyer? Mathematician? Mathematician. Yes, he was a math a math teacher in Tehran. But now that he's come to the States, all he can do is drive a cab. And I'm not entirely sure why that's there. Uh, I read it as just having some color, having some stereotypical color. Yeah. And I mean, initially... Oh, and, and having a witness, right? To, yes. to describe what happened to uh, poor Lambert there. Yeah, I mean, it struck me as for those out there who also listen to one of our sister shows battle of the atom also as you just mentioned chris claremont claremont had this habit when you got a character introduced and they were suddenly given a lot of background and they were clearly like a a small character you immediately knew that person was dead that you were getting that background so you'd feel a little sympathy when whatever the villain of the month was decided to murder them brutally I'm reading this. I was like, oh, that guy going to die. He's going to die badly. But no, he survives to talk to Detective uh, Hanrahan, a short-lived character, a character Wolfman brought into his run on Batman and then who exited pretty quickly along with him. But does she look a lot like Sarah? Yeah, that's fairly confusing there. And she leaves Gotham just as Sarah comes back, probably because it was too confusing to have them both together because they look too much alike. And I think she started out as a blonde and then somewhere along the way became a redhead, but now she looks even more like Sarah. And this of the two stories here is the one more firmly set in continuity because Hanrahan is there, because Bruce asks after Jim, who had recently had a heart attack, And so it's like, we are at this particular point in continuity right now. This one does feel more like a legitimate attempt to tell a story, while the other one is just kind of a, okay, we're doing kind of an anniversary thing, so let's lean into that. And while the other one does play with some of Grant's pet themes as well, this one goes the most of a full-on reimagining of the case of the chemical syndicate because it it takes the same names and the same basic idea that there's these four guys who are part of a chemical syndicate and it tells a completely different story because you have a supervillain involved and because as opposed to the other four versions of this story it's not Alfred Stryker who is the killer and this one here, it's not really a business that's going to work. So I thought it was so strange. Like, all right, you're going to handle the business. You're going to handle the chemicals. You're going to handle the transportation. And you're going to be public relations. And we're going to run this thing together. Yeah. 
And in the end, it turns out that it is Stryker's daughter who is the killer, who is pesticide. The killer here winds up being Stryker's daughter, which is the least surprise. I don't think it was intended to be a twist because when there's only one female character in the story outside of Detective Hanrahan, it's pretty obvious that the big woman who's wearing the suit is clearly the Amazonian-looking daughter of the one member of this syndicate who was screwed over by the others. Yeah, and it's not really a complex character, but I will say she had the best two lines, I think, of the night, because it reminded me of the Spider-Man, you could cure cancer, but I don't (laughs) want to cure cancer. Uh, Yeah, she says, but I'm not a killer. I just want revenge. Yes. That line is in my notes in quotes and then followed by like four question marks. <laughs> Look, I'm not saying that he should die, but he should and he should burn in hell. And okay, here's the thing. Every other version of this story or every version of the story but one sees Striker or the killer die except for the one from the previous version which was right at the end of the 60s when the code still had fangs so you couldn't even have the heroes inadvertently be responsible for the death of the villain he just had to get punched out and go to jail crime doesn't pay right crime doesn't pay but you also can't have the character just die Here, she seems to walk blindly into a hole she melted in a catwalk that seemed pretty obvious to me. But, you know, I'm not in the middle of fighting Batman, so maybe it wasn't as obvious as I thought it was. And that final scene does get a little too on the nose, because right after the the killer's slash revenge line, she's like, I'll just read it. I wanted them all to pay for what they did to my father. What's wrong with that? Wouldn't you do the same, Batman? What if your dad was was horribly injured? What if someone killed your father? Wouldn't you want justice? Come on, lady. Exactly. This is Batman you're talking to. You just asked the man about his raison d'etre. The second version of this in this issue, we're back in uh, Grant and Brayfogle, who we have covered many a Grant and Brayfogle story on this show. We've seen, you know, with Anarchy, with Leaves of Grass, with a lot of the Grant, Grant likes to tackle social issues. And here he's playing with one of the ones he uses a lot, which is the fate of the unhoused, but also with corporate greed. And with cocaine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Again, that's just like, wait, so you had the cabbie who was, in the previous story. And here you got this whole subplot with uh, Lambert's son being a Coke addict, having one of the drivers of their trucks, bring the Coke over the border. And again, red herring. It was just there. So Lambert's son could find the body. Just a great, like duality of Batman. The zany, call me pesticide. I shoot goo out of a gun. (laughs) And then the next story is, I'm going to throw cocaine in your face. (laughs) I'm going to throw cocaine in your face. Meanwhile, the unhoused are being melted by chemicals that were illegally dumped. 
Yeah, and the uh, the narrator is the guy who uncovers it. It would have really been something in what is it, ninety one? You said, uh, yes, to read the original story, and then read the retelling from the sixties, and read these two vastly different than modern retellings. What a fun issue! It was. I re- again. I read this when it first came out, and this was the first time I read Case of the Chemical Syndicate because it was not in the greatest Batman stories ever told, Shock of Shocks. This is the first time I read that, and I read all four of these, and I just, I remember, okay, there is a panel in this last story that has stuck with me for 91, that's what, 32 years ago? Towards the end, when you get the flashback to the, the unhoused camp getting drenched in these leaked chemicals is I think the lower right of that page after they've been asked, one of the guys there and his eye is literally melting out of his head. Yeah. That ain't good. Yeah. That panel, when I was getting back to this, it's like the one thing I could absolutely clearly remember from this is, yeah, this is the one with the melty eye, the melty eye, the melty eye. I remembered that melting eye. We didn't talk a ton about the art in the previous one. That was very house-style 60s. Here, we've talked about both Aparo and Brayfogel before. Aparo defined Batman in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. Like He probably drew more Batman pages than anyone else in that period. And we've had nothing but praise for Brayfogel in all of the stuff he's done, whether it was with Grant or Mench or Denny O'Neill, there's a great splash page in this story as Batman bursts into the window of the, the killers who just killed the second guy. There you get a Batman who's a little more sketchily violent as he's he's got the guy's hand and he's turned the gun around and he's making the guy put the gun in his own mouth and he's threatening to kill him unless he tells him who hired them. It's dark. Oh, it is dark. This is one of the few situations and we've been ruined on this in the modern era. Yeah. I said earlier, this felt more like a celebration of Batman, the anniversary issue. We get so many touches to creators. It feels very purposeful, very like, I'm not doing this to show off. I'm just doing this because it's an anniversary story. I'm trying to recognize everybody who came before me, and I'm not driving it into the fucking ground like Tom King. Right, because it's street signs. It's not in dialogue. It's when you jam it into the dialogue constantly. They're set dressing. It's like, oh, I happen to notice that. And if you don't happen to notice it, as you said, it's not clubbing you over the head. But... Here it is. There's every street sign, the sign on the, the doors, or st- the label of every store is a creator's name. O'Neill Books. That was, that was good. Miller Road. This was a celebration of that original story. And it adds Grant's little particular message in there. Because here, it's, this is a story about, in the long run, that's about corporate greed. The first three guys, the ones who were whacked, were the ones in charge of the chemical syndicate. Stryker isn't a member of the syndicate. He runs a shipping and reclamation company. 
And instead of actually disposing of the chemicals as he was supposed to, it's cheaper to just bury them. And then, oh shit, the city bought this land and now they're going to make it into a housing project. So he needs to kill everyone who might be able to attach him to those vats of chemicals. It's kind of like poltergeist if it wasn't a native burial ground, but instead toxic chemicals. Poltergeist, but with chemicals. And here he dies pretty much like he does in the first story. Only Batman doesn't punch him into the vat. He tries to vault the railing. It had been knocked loose by a batarang and he just plummets to his own demise. Whoops. And it ends on a really gorgeous two-page splash by Bray Fogel that is a, you know, 600 issues of Batman and Detective celebration. Just really nice looking. Could have been a poster. Got a little anarchy in there. Not to keep harping on the the background creator credits. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the last one that's in the story finishes up a, a few pages before the story does. The last one seems to be Finger Alley. And I got to think that that's purposeful. And that's yeah. a that's a nice touch. Yeah. Listen, everybody but the everybody in the industry knew all of that even when it wasn't as public a thing because back i believe it was 89 is when kane released batman and me his autobiography that is one of the most singularly self-aggrandizing things that you could ever read oh i bet it was i don't remember much of it having tried to read this pat yourself on the back autobiography at you know 10 but i still own it and i would love to reread it as an adult and try to see exactly how much credit he gives to you know any of his collaborators hey that'd be some interesting bonus content yeah we'd have to track down a second copy of it but i bet they ain't expensive because it came out around 89 so i bet they made a million freaking copies of it as matt and i do the same thing I mean, uh, 40 bucks on Amazon, but I bet a little digging, you might be able to find one cheaper. I'd have to find my copy, but I know I have a copy of it because I never threw anything out and it's a Batman thing. So I've definitely got it. Oh, yeah. We got used copies from uh, five bucks. Okay, there we go. I don't know how much more there is. I mean, we I think we've talked we've talked about this one through and through. If you had to pick a favorite of these two. Which one is it? That's hard. I know it is hard because they're they're both good and they're both different. And you're just like, I, I, I want to enjoy them both. And these are also two creative teams that I deeply love. Well, I really love that Bray Fogel art, but Aparo is one of the definitive Batman artists. Even if Bray Fogel is probably the one I like more of the two, I still love Aparo. And... Wolfman's is just balls to the wall wacky, which is a very Wolfman-y sort of thing. While the, the Grant one reads like an Alan Grant with that tribute mixed in. So yeah, I don't know if I could pick. I think I will say this is probably my, if we were just covering the first story in the anthology that's next, this would be the highest issue of the night. I think it still might be because they're, but some of the other stories in that anthology move that one up the ranking. They could only help uh, what's coming up. 
But uh, yes, I do believe, as we're looking ahead, it's time for the cases of the Chemical Syndicate on the big board. Okay, so 150 is Injustice, Gods Among Us, Year 2, Volume 1. Do we think this beats that? I really enjoy the creativity and the ambition here. So do and I. imagining this as one issue, just to see the, the creativity and what you can do with the bones of a story. It's the same story four times, just as a singular issue. Uh, what is this? Detective Comics 627. This might be overstating because I don't, I don't think this is top 100, but I, 627 feels like a real achievement. Like this is... A, a cool concept that's executed really well. I'm not sure if it's top 100, but I think it's right around there. Yeah. So I'm looking at the stuff around 100 and you've got, you know, shadow of the phantasm at 98 Batman TMNT at 99 super friends nightmares, the long Halloween special cold case, half an evil. This belongs right in that area. Yeah, and you got stuff like Player on the Other Side at 112, Doomsday Book at 111. Like, this feels like the right space. It really does. I would maybe say between Half and Evil and Bullet for Bullock, uh, because Bullet for Bullock doesn't seem to be a real substantive story. It's a good one, just not a lot of meat there. You know, it's funny. I was looking right. I was looking at right there too. I was like, "Half an evil bullet for Bullock." Cold case was right where I was looking. So I'm good with that. Let's do it. I was looking at half an evil. Like, is this above or below half an evil? So I think you settled it with uh, 104, right below half an evil. Cases of the Chemical Syndicates. Here's some cocaine for your face, kid. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I cause you to OD by flinging this right into your nose? My bad. (laughs) That's where I was going to go anyway, you druggie. The final story of the night is what I'm calling, for want of a better name, Detective Comics number 27, Anthology. This is Detective Comics volume 2, number 27. And as we discuss the stories, I'll do the creators on each one because it's an anthology. And this one has a really nice table of contents right at the beginning. But the one thing that is consistent are the editors are Mike Martz and Katie Kubert. And the cover date is March of 2014. So this is the 27th issue of the New 52 uh, Detective Comics series. And since Batman's first appearance was in Detective Comics 27, now that we've hit Detective Comics 27 again... We are making it a big old double-sized issue, despite it not really being an anniversary or anything. It's just an excuse to do a double-sized issue and pad out the book and make it more expensive. Because well. Of course, uh, and I'm sure we did that. I know we did it with Detective Comics uh, 1000, and I'm pretty sure we did it with Detective Comics 1027. We did, and we also did it with Detective Comics Volume 2, number 19, which would have been 900 if the numbering had continued. <laughs> yeah, that was, I remember that being like, wait a minute, we just did this like less than a year ago. That was an anniversary issue. And now you're doing this? Really? The one story we're not going to be covering is the first part of the Gothtopia event. 
because eventually we will be covering Gothtopia and thus we will cover that as part of the Gothtopia story. We are instead covering the other one, two, three, four, five, six, six stories in here. Uh, we'll start out with the, the reason for the season. We'll go in order, uh, which is this version of the case of the chemical syndicate, which is written by Brad Meltzer with art by Brian Hitch, colors by David Barron and lettered by Chris Aliopoulos. This one traces the original story the closest of any of the ones we've read. It really doesn't deviate at all from the originals up to and including the death trap from the first one that none of the other versions use. But what it adds is multiple narrations. And that was a real annoying little bit for me. Oh, yeah. And some of them are just just not good. Uh, like where Batman is narrating over this and this art is not particularly great. The inks are way too heavy for me. I mean, it's it's Hitch. So it's like it should be good. But it's just it looks kind of muddy. This is not a great digital conversion either. It's just it's all just a bit wonky. But where Batman is narrating on this splash page, he says, I, and this is in a line of like several, I do it because. Yep. And on this splash page, I do it because it secretly thrills me. No, that's not Batman. And the one that got me even more than that, I do it because I love when they scream. No, mm-mm. no, nope. He does that's not. Pun- that's Punisher shit right there. Right. Batman does not get pleasure out of beating people up if your batman gets pleasure out of beating people up you've got the wrong character exactly and the fourth page of the story i am pretty sure there's a miscue the word balloons are pointing at the wrong characters because you look at it you have striker is sitting and the other partner comes in and says, Paulie, I think something bad happened. But the next page, Stryker is calling the guy who just called him Paulie. Paulie, they pointed the word balloons wrong or drew the wrong ones in the wrong positions. Oh, wow. Yeah, you are absolutely right. Because then at the end, the, the partner goes, how do you hear all this? But he's the one who described it all two panels above. So the, that first panel is just flat out wrong. I had to go back and read it like twice because like, wait, something's not right here. And it took me that long to realize they misattribute the word balloons. And that is something editorial should absolutely have caught. Mm, that's a That's a bad goof right there. And what frustrates me beyond is not just that I don't like the diary entries because I think they're too purple and I don't think they're Batman. But you have the diary entry narration running right next to Bruce's internal monologue. And it's just way too much narration. Yeah, you can't get both a a diary and the narration. you got to pick one. Like either Batman is doing this contemporaneously or he's writing it down later you pick one 
And Meltzer tends to over-narrate because Meltzer is a novelist first. And so he's used to being able to just have as much narration as he likes on the page. But sometimes, in this case, definitely, it is way too much. At least there's not a ton of dialogue. And, I mean, this exists outside of canon because there's no way this lines up with any existing, whether it's zero year or year one canon, because Gordon has never seen Batman before in this story. So that doesn't work with anything. And if that were the case, that this is completely outside of everything, the final panel where after Stryker falls into the vat of chemicals and you get the last page and you see the hand coming out of the vat of chemicals. If you've got a completely out of canon story here, why isn't that hand chalk white as opposed to green? That's what I read. Once you change it to ace chemicals and that's your, your final panel, like you're making a Joker reference. I guess they just didn't make it all the way. Right. And it's just, that bugged me. It's like, wait, you're set, as you said, you're setting this at Ace Chemicals now. Guy falls into the vat of chemicals screaming about burning. And then he pulls himself out of the vat. Does Batman just keep going to this chemical factory and making criminals fall into vats of chemicals? And it's also a bit of a stretch to make this like one of his first nights to make it, you know, the Joker night and Ace Chemicals and this feels very contrived and it was my least favorite of the retellings yeah and one thing that i don't think anyone has ever done and i think it would explain a lot if you wanted to explain anything and not just have joker's obsession with fucking with gordon be just that he decided that gordon would be a good person to fuck with is Gordon is usually there in Ace Chemicals when he goes over. So making it a point for Joker that you were there the night I was born, just like him. So you have a special place in my heart, Jimbo. Mm, I wonder if old Tom King is doing that as we speak. Oh, yeah. Possibly. Possibly. But, yeah, I mean... I, And frankly, he's the Joker. I don't think the Joker needs much of a reason to do anything that he does, but still. But fortunately, most of the other stories in here are better than this one. Yes, the stories that are, I'd I'd say, substantive are better, especially the next one. Not really much of a story, but goddamn if Neil Adams don't draw the shit out of it. He does. This does not forgive greg Hurwitz for mad though because nothing will ever get us to forgive him for mad no this one i probably have the least notes on because so much of this is just let's get let neil adams draw in you know some different styles and riff on classic like dick sprang batman riff on his own work riff on frank miller and then get to this sort of weird little meta thing and throw in a cameo by Bill Finger at the end. Yeah. There's not much substance, but it's more poetic than anything else. And it reminds us, reminded as he has passed now, that even in his later 
days when Neil Adams had a writer to work with versus just sort of being given left to his own devices, he could still really deliver. Especially that final page looked really nice with all the kids in the comic shop and Bruce coming to. It's a nice page. It is a very nice page. And I, I like seeing all of the different styles. It's, it's a weird meta story, but if anybody could have pulled the art off, it's Neil Adams for sure. Yes. And also some nice pinups in here. The, nice, the next page by Jock looks real nice. Everybody buys a book for Calendar Man pinups. I didn't even give the full credits on that one. Uh, yeah, the the second story was old school, written by Greg Hurwitz, art by Neil Adams, colors by John Callis, and letters by Dave Sharp. The next story is Better Days, written by Pete Tomasi, art by Ian Bertram, colors by Dave Stewart, and lettered by Sal Cipriano. I like the fact that here we get an old Bruce, but it's a very different take on the old Bruce than the one we're used to. Nearly every other version of an aged Bruce Wayne has gotten harder and colder. And here we have an old Bruce who's surrounded by his family and has a lightness to him that you don't see in most Bruce Waynes. This is what I was mentioning all the way back when we, when I feel like we started talking. I read this as being in the Returns universe. It Admittedly, it doesn't line up perfectly, but the visual style, the big-bodied Bruce that's older, this is a, a just a great take on this universe. As a Batman who's not embittered, who still has friends, who has grown to not enjoy the violence, but enjoy the life that he has made for himself and enjoy Gotham as it is. And the fact that he is sneaking out of the cave at 70 years old. 75. Yeah. As a, as a meta device, like the endurance of Batman as a character and it's a symbol. I, I really enjoyed this one. It's cute as hell. And this, I mean, there's that splash page that is a visual homage to the Dark Knight splash. But here he's smiling as he goes out for one more night. I like the fact that Tomasi is giving us a Bruce who can smile. And that at 75, you know, Alfred might be in a wheelchair and needing oxygen, but Alfred is still alive. And Barbara and Dick and Tim and Damien are all there. And Damien is still a crotchety, but he's not the psychotic, dark, borderline evil Batman of Batman in Bethlehem, or that we often see this Damien who's just on the the right side of insane. And everyone's there to celebrate Bruce's 75th anniversary, his 75th birthday. And it's just a nice story. It feels like a happy ending for Batman. Yes. And And that's nice. Yes. It's so rare that we get a happy ending for Batman. Next story is the shortest. This is Hero with story and art by Francesco Francavia. Letters by Desi Sienti and Taylor Esposito. 
this is a three-page prequel to Black Mirror with Batman just saving some people from a car that clearly skidded off the road in the rain. And when he gets them out of the car, the mother, thank you for saving him again. And when the car blows, you know, he's pulled both the mother and the son out and the kid is, it's James Gordon Jr. And that must be Barbara. And there's not much to the story. There's very little to the story, but Frank Avia draws the hell out of it. That he does. This is a, an excuse for Frank Avia to have a nice, fun little three-page bit of fun to draw the story. There's not much I, more to it. I never fucking remember that climax at year one. That <laughs> <laughs> never. Like I, I, I need to. I need to get the memento style tattoos. Right. Uh, I need to get the plot of Mask of the Phantasm, and I need to get Batman saves uh jimbo jr at the end of year one i did not understand what was going on in this story when you when you remember again and she calls him jr it's like oh okay there you go had no clue that's what that is that's why it's again god batman memento tattoos yes next i just think it's a a kelly jones pinup of Batman, Azrael, Tim Drake, Bane, and Harley Quinn, who are a lot of characters that Jones didn't get to draw a lot of. I mean, plenty of Bane, but not a lot of Azrael in his original costume, and not much Harley at all. So cool to see Kelly Jones get to to draw them. Uh, When are we going to pitch that Batman vampire miniseries? Which one? Just that Batman vampire miniseries that oh. should be done oh, with okay. Kelly Jones. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll work on that. I'll, I'll I'll get in touch with all my friends at DC. Uh, the next story is the Sacrifice, written by Mike W. Barr, with art by Guillaume March and letters by Carlos M. Mangual. So a story that is still pretty high up on the old big board is To Kill a Legend which is at at number 25. So that is a a very good showing, which is the Phantom Stranger takes Bruce to a world where he can save his parents and save that young Bruce from going through what he did and have, as I think you said it, a Batman born of gratitude on that world versus tragedy. Here, the Phantom Stranger does almost the opposite lesson where it's like oh let me show you a world where your parents lived and the world is a miserable place because there's no batman it's yeah you can be happy but everybody else is miserable and afraid and scared it's almost literally it's a wonderful life because this case this is a world where batman wasn't born jim gordon is quadriplegic thomas wayne even though he lived you know, he lost an arm to Joe Chill's bullet. Rachel Ghoul controls half of Europe. Dick Grayson is on death row for killing Tony Zuko. Respected and, businessman, Tony Zuko. And I think possibly worst of all, the love interest that Bruce is married to with a son is Natalia Trusevich, the pianist from the Dark Knight run. Not Selena, not Talia, not Silver St. Cloud or Julie Madison. Natalia Trusevich. That's terrible. Of all of the love interests to pick. Didn't because... even give him Selena? Yeah, exactly. 
or silver. I want because it's not like this is Herwitz. This is Mike Barr. I can't figure out for the life of me why he picked that love interest. Could have been an editorial thing. Yeah. Not like there's much character development or exposition for her aside from a name. I don't think this is a bad story, but this story feels the most superfluous. Yes. And the the scene at the end where Bruce hugs his son, it's not like Bruce has memories of this life. He comes to in this life and is there for, what do you think, half an hour, maybe an hour? It's not like we even have the, for the man who has everything, where Clark thinks that that is his real life. Because the moment where he, you go tell your mother and your grandparents, I love them all. All right. And you too, son. When we did the bonus episode that used the animated adaptation of For the Man Who Has Everything, we pointed out that there, Jam Dimiteus, who writes that, really narrows in on Clark's relationship with his son, which makes Clark saying goodbye to his son even more poignant. Here, it seems like Barr is trying to do that, but it's a six-page story. Bruce has barely interacted with this kid. Yeah, does not quite get there. It's it's not bad. And I also don't like that in the end, the stranger brings him back and you get the impression that he made Bruce watch his parents get murdered again. You couldn't have just dropped him back in the present and spared him having to watch his parents get shot again, Phantom Stranger? This is what's going to happen whenever you think about being happy. Somewhere <laughs> in the multiverse, your parents are going to die. Then there's Gothtopia. And that this brings us to the final story of the night, of the, the anthology end of the night, which is 27. This is Scott Snyder's story, art by uh, everybody's favorite, Sean Gordon Murphy. Uh, Credited colors, here as simply Sean Murphy. Yes. Colors by Matt Hollingsworth and letters by Steve Wands. Uh, Hollingsworth colors the White Knight stuff, if I'm correct. I believe you are correct. However, he takes more direction from Sean Gordon Murphy to apparently color the stuff like Dirty Dishwater. Uh, it's much more vibrant here, uh, and it looks better. It does. And first things first, before we get any further, when you get to the big two-page spread that is the second third page of this story, there is a giant mechanical shark in this bat cave. So, shark watch! I will at some point go back through our catalog and note all of the episodes with a shark watch. Cause I need to do it at some point because we need to almost have them highlighted somewhere that this is a shark watch. So there's a lot in this story that I think about and I'm not sure how much, how much I like what it says about Bruce Wayne. I think you get to the end And I mean, it shows that a Bruce Wayne is always going to make the noble choice to sacrifice his own happiness, his own life for the good of Gotham. And that's great. But this is almost the opposite of the Tomasi Bertram story. It is. And Snyder would come back to this idea in um, Endgame. Is it in game? Is, is it the end of his run on Batman? Super heavy. Super heavy. Yeah. And yeah, the, the, uh, 
whatever Batman machine that he had. Yes, this is the first appearance of the Batman machine. This is the thing that he uses to reboot his brain at the end of Super Heavy first appears here, where every 27 years, Batman clones himself and is replaced by another iteration of Bruce Wayne. This means Bruce never gets a happy ending. It does arguably say that Bruce is absolutely not so selfish that he's training his replacement, that he's never expecting any of the Robins to give up their lives in the way he has, which I guess is noble but also is saying that he never expects any of them to live up to him. You can read that either way, that nobody's ever going to be good enough to be me, so I have to leave this perpetual cycle of me's. Trying to figure out the, the precise process here. The Batman's just incubate? Yeah. When a Batman reaches the 25th year... They start the cloning process, which takes about two years to accelerate them to the proper age. Then they dump the memories up to the point of, you know, I shall become a bat. The previous Batman is there briefly to introduce this Batman to the world before they pass on and leave the other Batman to take over. And this has been going on for like 200 years. So at the point you're basically in your middle 50s, you clone yourself. And then two years later, a new Batman pops out and then you go off into the woods to die. Yeah. Basically, the way you look at it is Bruce would have, depending on late 40s, early 50s, depending if. Bruce came back to Gotham at 21 or 25. So you're either 48 or 52. Oh, there we go. This Bruce looks old, but I guess Batman years uh, age you pretty rapidly. Yeah, they kind of kick your ass. And I mean, I kind of like the idea that, you know, okay, and then when I go, you burn everything in the cave. Why? Because you're going to need to fill up with your own trophies, your own allies, your own villains. And then the new Bruce looks up and sees the one thing that I'd wager is the thing that is always left in the cave. Because it looks like the exact same giant Joker card from the original cave. What's that one? You'll find out. We all do. Which is the question of now, do we have Joker reincarnating or is Joker at this point, more or less a mimetic virus, that there's always some Joker, whether it's, you know, not the literal Joker, but, you know, that is an ethos that exists. Also, I think it's fun. The back computer is now named Alfred. You know, I agree with you what you said about Hollingsworth, and it feels like you look at these two-page spreads in here, and it's like, oh, Murphy can actually draw a decent action scene two-page spread it's just that he's not given the a hand to guide him when doing the art on the white knight stuff both better colors 
and better writing here. And I mean, again, when, when we get to the end, the old Bruce basically says new Bruce doesn't have to stay. He can go. But the minute new Bruce hears about a crime going on in the new narrows, he comes back because that's who he is. And for some of my quibbles with, you know, not liking that Bruce doesn't get a happy ending, not liking that he doesn't trust people to follow in his footsteps. It does say at his heart, he is a man who is dedicated to protecting his city, protecting people. He's a good man. And that's very important for Batman. Uh, It's much better than a Batman taking pleasure in what he does. Still a lot of ethics to unpack, though, about creating clones to fight in this war. Yeah. And Batman can take pleasure in the results of what he does. Oh, of course. But not the acts of violence. He can come home at the end of the night and feel like he has had a night with a job well done. I think if he doesn't, you're also running into trouble. Because why does he do it then? Then he is just a neurotic psychopath. He has to look at what he does and be like, I am making a difference. The world is a better place and I am content with that. But yeah, I uh, this is not a bad story. I'm just, I don't necessarily agree with all of the things that Snyder is saying here. No. And I gotta think that maybe Snyder would think about some of this stuff a little bit differently now. I do Maybe? Too. I, th- I think so. Oh, and we didn't say, but the page before this is a uh, 66 pinup by Mike Allred, which looks fun. We got to read more Batman 66 for the show, Matt. We do. We absolutely do. I don't know if I have anything else. Uh, I'm good. So that means it's time to put Detective Comics Anthology on the big board. This I, this does not go up as high as 627. No. But I think it might fall above 387. I think it's it's the middle of the night. And 387 was 225. 225. So somewhere between 104 and 225. That's... Yeah, should be easy. Yeah, exactly. I think this this falls in the top 200. We were just talking about it. Super Heavy at 166. Super Heavy is that one phenomenal issue with the jock art. It also has the really good Alfred stuff towards the end. There's real character heft in that story. I don't think any of the stories here carry that level of emotion i would though put this above injustice volume one at 178 166 to 178 that is a a more reasonable span i like 170 the misfits more that's the uh grant and sale story where chancer killer moth and Catman and Calendar Man kidnap Bruce Wayne, Mayor Crawl, and Jim Gordon. Oh, here's a quick 176, the Gotham Villains 80 
80th Anniversary Giant, another anthology. This, I think this has more to it than that. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And probably more than the Wayne Manor, Anatomy of a Murder, The Shadow of the Bat story with Bruce's ancestor and the Underground Railroad. Yeah. Um, how about New 175? Yeah, I think that is a good spot. So that that does it. That does it for tonight. Uh, so what do you think, Will? We, we've done 99. Think we're good, or do you think we want to we want to go a little further? Oh shoot! You know I don't have any plans next week. Let's do a uh, episode one hundred. Then I think we will, because next week that means episode one hundred. It's going to be the climax of Grant Morrison's first act of their Batman epic, Batman R.I.P., along with two of the Golden Age stories that inspired it. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, June, come on, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubucks, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sraggioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter, as I will continue to call it, at Batchat Comics. And the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Decatur. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for a weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.